Amen. Thank you, worship team. And thank you, church, for being here. Go ahead and take a quick seat this morning. How are we doing? We're doing good. It's good to be in God's house this morning, isn't it? It's a, it's a beautiful day, right? Have you enjoyed the weather? Oh, it's been nice. It's been nice. My name is Tyler. I'm the Youth and Families Pastor here at Newtown Road, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, for those who may be tuning in online, I want to say uh, welcome to you and welcome to those who are here in person this morning as well. If you've never filled out a communication card, maybe you're a first-time guest or visitor um, or just wandered in somehow this morning, that's great. We're glad you're here. We would love to get some information um, about you and your family. And so if you want to fill one of those out, the best way to do that is to download our Church Center app and fill it out that way. If you're online, you can click the link and fill it out uh, there in the comments section. And then you can get information that you need to know about things happening in and around our ministry. We would love to get in touch with you that way. We're happy that you're here this morning. Um, in just a minute, I'm going to be able to introduce a good friend of mine and uh, uh, someone who I know that you enjoy just as much as I enjoy. Um, but I'll save that just for a second. I got a couple quick announcements. Number one, our middle schoolers are meeting this Wednesday night. We're having a hangout on Wednesday night. The young ladies are meeting at the Hainers house for some s'mores and some fun and, you know, hanging out. I don't know, whatever they're going to do. <laughs> I don't know. The guys are going to hang out at our house. We're going to do some s'mores. We're going to have some fun. And so if you're a middle school student or if you're a family of a middle schooler or if you have middle school friends uh, or neighbors, whatever, uh, let them know about this. Grades 6, 7, and 8 are invited to come to, uh, to this event Wednesday night. I'll be sending out an informational email tomorrow with more information that you may need for that. Um, and then, as always, thank you so much for your continued giving. Your faithfulness is inspiring, church. If you want to give this morning tithes and offerings, you can drop something off in the box as you head out the door, and, uh, and that's available for you. Obviously, online is also available to give, and we want to thank you for your continued faithfulness in that way. Now, I'm going to announce, uh, or announce, uh, invite our speaker uh, up this morning, Simon Jones, a good friend of ours. He serves in our youth ministry, um, and it is always a pleasure to hear from him because he has an ability, a God-given ability to teach his word. And so if you can make welcome Simon Jones this morning. All right. Can you hear me? That's good. This sermon's going to either be really long or really short. I'm not really sure which one it'll be, but we'll find out. Either way, it's a great pleasure to be here this morning. I am excited to open up God's word, and we're going to jump right in. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's word is powerful and precious. 
It is a sure and steady anchor amidst turmoil and unease, an anchor of truth in stormy seas, and I am eager this morning to open it up with you and study it. Today, we'll continue through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 17. Mark 10, we'll start in verse 17. It's a familiar passage to many who've grown up going to the church. As you're turning there, not long ago, I came across a recent survey of American adults, which was conducted by George Barna. Surveys are not perfect. However, I do not think it's wise to just dismiss them. Respondents were asked this question, whether they agreed or disagreed with this statement. Having faith matters more than which faith you have. Having faith matters more than which faith you have. 68% of those who describe themselves as Christians agreed with that statement saying that having some type of religious faith is more important than the faith a person aligns with. Shockingly, and I mean shockingly, 56% of those who describe themselves as evangelical Christians agreed with that idea. Respondents were then asked this question, whether they agreed or disagreed with this statement. A person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. A person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. 52%, more than half of those who identify as Christians agreed with that statement. 70% of those who identified as Catholics agreed with that statement. However, what I found far more disturbing was that in terms of evangelical churches, in general, our church would be considered an evangelical church. 41%. Four out of 10 people agreed with that statement, saying that salvation can be earned by doing enough good things. That is not the gospel. This is not what the Bible teaches. If this survey is accurate, that means that 40% of people that go to evangelical churches, maybe that come to our church, do not believe the gospel. Today's passage then takes on vital and urgent importance as it addresses that issue. God's word leaves no doubt, no doubt, where it stands on how entrance into heaven is granted. Now I'm gonna ask you to do something a little unusual now, though in the past I think it was fairly normal. I'm about to read from God's word, his inspired word. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as I read God's word? I'm gonna start in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It's the story of the rich young ruler. This is what God's word says. As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word which you've given us so that we can know you. I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That you would open our eyes so that we could see beautiful things in your word today. That you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That you would free us from distractions. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Please be seated. The encounter of the rich young ruler and Jesus is recorded in three of the four gospels. We learn from Matthew's account that he was young, we learn from Luke's account that he was a ruler. While we don't know his specific office, he was a member of the ruling class. It is a familiar story, not difficult to understand, but I think it's an unsettling encounter. At least it should be unsettling, especially to us here in the West. What makes the encounter unsettling is how the rich young ruler is presented. Firstly, he is spiritually earnest. This man is spiritually earnest. He comes to Jesus, he runs up to Jesus, he seeks Jesus out and kneels before him. How scary I think it is that one can seemingly bow down before Jesus on the outside, but as we shall see later on the inside, not have a heart surrendered to him. It seems outside actions are not necessarily indicative of a surrendered heart. He is though spiritually earnest. The young man asked this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question to ask. This is a good desire. Eternal life is a noble quest. And as Jesus so often does, he challenges his questioner to think about the full implications of his words. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Like, what's going on here? What is Jesus saying? Uh, basically, I think he's saying this to the young man. You call me good, but do you realize what that actually means? what that implies. Do you actually know who I am? Are you prepared to acknowledge my deity? Are you ready and willing to obey what I command? Will you do what I say? Are you prepared to know who I am? You see, this man's most basic error, his most fundamental mistake, was that he saw salvation as something to be attained by his own efforts. His most basic error was that he saw salvation to be attained as something as by his own efforts. He sought eternal life through works of the law. What must I do? What must I do, he asks. And this is a mistake that people are still making today. The Bible is unambiguous on this point. And I could read from many, 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 many texts, but I just chose one. Galatians 2.16 says this, we know that a person is not justified. Justified means declared righteous, 
pardoned, worthy. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Salvation cannot be attained by, salvation cannot be attained by works of human effort. The righteousness required for eternal life cannot be gained this way. To be sure, to be sure, there is a righteousness required for eternal life. The author of Hebrews writes, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This should trouble us all. Or to put it another way, God is holy and you are not. There is righteousness in heaven. There is unrighteousness on earth. And that's a problem. That's in fact our greatest problem. Why is that a problem, you ask? Well, the psalmist says this in Psalm 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Those are strong words. When the Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's presence during the Old Covenant period, where God would meet his people, when that Ark was returned by the Philistines after it had been captured, 1 Samuel chapter 6 records this. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? God is holy. He, he's other. He's pure. He's transcendent. He's perfect. God cannot dwell in the presence of wickedness, of evil, of sin. The glorious good news of the gospel does not begin with, you are a sinner. It starts with, God is holy. And that's a problem for the unholy. That's a problem. How then, how then is the required righteousness reached? This young man is thinking the way to have eternal life, the way to have that required righteousness to be with God in heaven is through law keeping. So Jesus responds by directing him back to the law. It's as, he's, it's as if Jesus said this, you want to go with the law? Let's go with the law. Do if that's the way you want to go, then you must do all that the law commands. All of it. And he lists several of the Ten Commandments, summing up and naming the commandments that deal with duty to neighbor. He doesn't really introduce the deeper commandments about duty to God. And this young man looks at Jesus and says, all these I have kept since my youth. Now, most of us, I don't think, would really have the audacity to make such a claim. Um, what we can safely say, though, is that this young man is pious, he's religious, he's devout, he has the appearance of goodness, of having it all together, he claims to have observed all the commandments Jesus listed from his youth. I mean, he, he's a pious guy. But something's troubling this guy. He, he comes asking, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I obey? 
And then he says he's kept all those commandments. But he knows he's missing something. Like, why else would he come to Jesus and ask the question in the first place? And the text says, Jesus looked at him, and Jesus loved him. Uh, what glorious good news it is that Jesus loves sinners. I think this rich young ruler is sincere. This man is not trying to trap Jesus like one of the scribes or the Pharisees. This is not the Pharisees putting Jesus to the test earlier in this chapter about divorce, trying to get him into trouble. I mean, Jesus looks at him and loves him. This man is sincere. And now Jesus changes the conversation, and he does this by saying something very difficult, something very challenging. I think there's a word here about what love is and what love isn't. Sometimes love must say hard things. Love must say the necessary thing, even if it's the unpopular thing. Jesus doesn't say to this young man, it's not what you believe in that matters. What matters is that you're sincere in your belief. Just have faith in something. If Jesus had said that, that would have been unloving. Jesus doesn't say to this man, just keep doing your best. Just keep working hard so that you do enough good things to earn your way to heaven. That would have been unloving because it wouldn't have been the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Jesus loved this man, so he told him the truth. He told him the necessary thing. How you say hard things matters, though. Jesus told him not in an obnoxious way, but in a way in which he could receive it. Jesus says this, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. He's spiritually earnest, he's apparently pious, and he's sincere. Isn't this what saving faith looks like? And the answer is no, apparently not. Despite all his law-keeping, Mark records that he lacked one thing. Presumably, if he had this, he would be perfect or complete. But right now, he's not perfect. Not in God's eyes. He needs something else. No matter how much law-keeping he has mustered, he needs something. And the one thing he lacks is the only thing that matters. Like, what is this one thing he lacks? Because it sounds like three things. Sell your possessions, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and follow me. How are those three demands really one? I think these commands can best be summed up like this. Your attachment to your possessions needs to be replaced by an attachment to me. Your attachment to your possessions needs to be replaced by an attachment to me. It's as though this man stood there with his hands full of money. He's got money in his hands and he's holding on tight. But Jesus is supposed to be in his hands. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Reach out and take my hand. To do this, the man must open his fingers and let the money fall. And it'll fall on the poor, among other places. 
The one thing he needs is not what falls out of his hands. The one thing he needs is what he takes into his hand. Jesus is saying, in effect, you lack one thing. You lack me. Stop treasuring money and start treasuring me. You want to inherit eternal life? You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Only by your attachment to me, only by trusting in me, only by depending on me will you inherit eternal life and enter the kingdom. If you would be perfect, which is the only way into God's kingdom, follow me. Be connected to me. Depend on all that I am for you. And verse 23 records that disheartened, shocked, appalled. This is a word of lament. I I can imagine seeing the expression on this guy's face turn into sadness. He walks away. He walks away. Rather than following Jesus, he went away, choosing his many possessions over Jesus. On the one side you have Jesus, the sinless, spotless, precious, all-satisfying, eternally existing Son of God, the righteous one, Emmanuel, God with us, who humbly took on flesh not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the many. On the other side, you have money and everything this world can offer you. And no doubt money can buy you lots of cool things. It sure can. It can get you power and influence and comfort and fame and security and a a boat. I mean, it can get you a lot but it does not merit eternal life. And it does not satisfy your soul. But this guy chooses stuff. And according to Romans 1.23, this is what we've all done. We've all done, we, we are the rich young ruler. Romans 1.23 says this, we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've exchanged God for stuff, for a cheap and shoddy substitute. This is the very nature of what sin is. It's a preference for things over God. My way over God's way. My will over God's will. My desires over God's desires. Living for my glory over God's glory. Where man is big and God is small, that might not seem like a big deal. But man isn't big, and God isn't small, and it is a big deal. The rich young ruler is a sad reminder of of Jesus' warning in Mark 8.36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He has forfeited his soul. He has prospered his whole life long with material wealth and left Jesus and perished. This young man claims to have kept the commandments, at least the commandments that focus on behavior and loving our neighbor, the horizontal commandments of the law. But there is no doubt he hasn't kept the vertical commandments of the law having to do with loving God, especially the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. When it was all on the line for this guy, he trusted his wealth more than God. The rich young ruler really didn't have money. Money had him. His wealth was his God, and that kept him from entering the kingdom. And he didn't see this. He didn't know this until he really had to choose. 
His great wealth had blinded him to the idolatry that was his life. This man's life didn't glorify God. It didn't make God look great. It glorified money. This man was a man of faith. His faith, though, was placed in himself. It's then unsurprising that the Bible says in Matthew that you cannot serve God and money. Jesus was this young man's example, his teacher, his counselor, but he wasn't his treasure, and he wasn't his savior. He was seeking to be his own savior. He was trusting in himself and his good works. When it comes to justification, to being righteous in God's eyes, what matters is what are you depending on? What are you trusting in? And may I suggest this morning that what you trust, you also treasure. Surely we are meant to contrast this passage with the one that comes directly before it in the text, which we studied last week, discussing receiving the kingdom of God like a child. What did Jesus say in verse 15? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. So how does a child receive it? Needy, dependent trust. It's not the self-sufficient who enter, it's the needy. Wealth is no qualification. Poverty of spirit is. God's economy is different than this world's. And pressing on this point, in verse 23, Jesus proclaims how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are like thunderstruck here. They had assumed that just as most things in this world are easier for the rich, surely entry into God's kingdom must also be easier. But Jesus doubled down and says it again. It seems that nobody starts with the balance loaded in their favor when it comes to entry into God's kingdom. But why? Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Isn't justification by faith? In, indeed it is, and gloriously so. And faith is trust, and saving faith is trust in God. And honestly, I think it's a lot harder to see your need for God and to trust God when your bank account is full. Why do I need God? Money meets my needs. My bank is full. I've got all the comfort I need. I can even get groceries delivered to my house. Why do I need God? I don't need him. Back in March and April of this year, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when there was so much unknown, people were more fearful, did you go into the grocery stores, like I did, and see empty shelves? Had you ever seen empty shelves before? I mean, this is America, right? We, we don't have empty shelves here. Was that not a little disconcerting? Do you think you're more likely to see your need and depend on God when the shelves are empty or when the shelves are full? In our scarcity or in scarcity, our need is clear and our options are few. And in our fear, we are driven to seek and to trust God. But exercising in faith and prosperity is much more difficult. It's quite different. Test yourself. When have you sought God most earnestly? In need or in abundance? In need or in abundance? 
I wonder if you're a little scared of getting rich, because I feel like that would be warranted. Like, do we take seriously the warnings of riches given in the Bible? Like 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered, they've wandered from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. To be sure, it's not so much the having money as the trusting in money which ruins the soul. But if you've got money and you're holding on to it, and it's supplying so many needs, it's just harder. It's just harder to open your hands and trust God. Well, Jesus makes it worse in the next verse when he says this. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what are we to make of this verse? It's, it's a bit of an odd expression, to be sure. And there have even been a few attempts over the years to improve the text. One is to change the word from camel, which in the Greek is apparently quite close to the word for a large rope or cable. Therefore, rendering the verse, it is easier for a large rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There is, however, no compelling reason to believe that is the correct translation of that verse. A second, more popular way to improve the text is to say that the term eye of the needle referred to a tiny gate in the Jerusalem city wall that camels could go through only with great difficulty. They would have to kneel and be unloaded, and then they would be pushed, and they could make it through the gate. But they could eventually make it through. It was possible. Every commentator I read said there is not the slightest evidence for this. It's a total myth. It's a complete fabrication. No such gate ever existed. This second interpretation, in particular, does great damage to the biblical text. What is worse than the lack of evidence for this idea is that it actually undermines Jesus' entire point. The expression cannot mean the exact opposite of what the text goes on to say that it means. That which Jesus presents as impossible is turned into a remote possibility. The rich person, given sufficient unloading and humility, might just, might just possibly squeeze his way in. That was not what Jesus meant. And it was not how the disciples understood it. And we know this by reading the very next verse. We need not wonder what Jesus meant by this proverb. You do not have to read commentators to find out what the verse means. You don't have to read it in the original Greek. You just need to continue reading. Jesus tells us what he means. One of the most basic lessons when interpreting the Bible is to let scripture interpret scripture. The text tells us what it means. The next verse records that the disciples were astonished. They have moved from being amazed to now just like totally dumbfounded. Shocked, they ask him, then who can be saved? Once again, they're thinking that the well-to-do have an advantage. In a culture which interpreted wealth as a sign of God's blessing, if this law-abiding, affluent, sincere, earnest, respectable, disciplined, pious young man cannot be saved, then who can be? And the text records 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Let's not change the word here. Let's not soften this. It is not merely hard to be saved. It is not merely difficult to be saved. It is impossible, not possible. It is not possible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is it not possible? Because it's impossible for any man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not something that you or I can do. Romans 8, 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. You can't do it. There's a song that goes like this. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No separation from the world. No work I do, no gift I give. Can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. I cannot cause my soul to live. But thanks be to God that Jesus doesn't stop his sentence to the disciples with the word impossible, but continues. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God is God of the impossible, and so for him the impossible becomes possible. What human beings can't do, God can. Salvation by human effort is impossible. But salvation is holy by God's grace. The salvation of people is always a miracle, but miracles are what God does. I wonder if you believe that this morning, that the salvation of anyone is a miracle. Do you treasure Jesus this morning? Are you a follower of Christ? Have you repented of your sins and turned solely to Jesus for mercy? Has God changed your heart, giving you new affections, new passions, new joys, new desires? If so, that is a miracle. It is not something you caused. And do not think this is true because of some exceptional quality you possess, that you have a superior form of knowledge or wisdom or humility or ability or beauty or worth, that it is owed to you because of your upbringing or good deeds or family heritage. No. That is not the gospel. No one deserves salvation. You, Christian, are a miracle of God's grace. You were once the rich young ruler, dead in your sins, helpless, alienated from God, in love with this world, preferring other things to Almighty God. But God changed your heart, God forgave your sins. God made you alive. Jesus paid it all. And all out of sheer and extravagant grace. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Far too often I hear people of all ages, but particularly younger people, say, my testimony is boring. It's run of the mill. It's not exciting. And to be sure, there was a time when I believed that same thing. However, there is nothing boring about a miracle. There is nothing ordinary about God raising the dead. 
There is nothing mundane about being delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. All totally undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited, unearned. J.I. Packer writes this. The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their demerit, it is God showing goodness to persons who only deserve severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them, and no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. I wonder if we believe that this morning. If these truths take deep root in our hearts, it will silence pride and it'll awaken praise. It creates humble worshipers of God and lovers of others. Now just a brief word on the last few verses. As is so often the case, Peter is the first to speak and says, we have left everything and followed you. Like we, the disciples, we have done what the rich young ruler didn't do. We've left everything and we followed you. Jesus doesn't rebuke him or correct him or admonish him, but instead he makes a staggering promise, like a staggering promise. He says this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a great promise. Jesus is saying that he's worth it. It's worth it to follow him. To be sure, it's a mixed bag now as joys are mixed with sorrows, as pleasure is mixed with pain. The cross is not only an initial burden, it's a constant one. However, is now, however, now is not to be compared with what is to come. There will be rewards in heaven, treasures that will not spoil or fade. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy, forever pleasure. Sounds pretty good. This world is not all there is, but right now does count forever. It does. In conclusion, you and I will always lack one thing, unless we look away from ourselves to the mercy of God in the person of Jesus. He is God's righteous one, by whom the many will be counted righteous. The rich young ruler saw salvation as something to be attained by his own efforts until he was ready to receive it by faith as something completely undeserved of which he was not worthy. He could not enjoy it. 
And the same is true of us today. Stop working for something that's freely given. Come to Christ. Trust Christ. Treasure Christ. Open your hands and take Christ in your hands. Repent and be free of the slaving power of sin. J.A. Packer once again wrote this. New Testament Christianity is a religion of hope, a faith that looks forward. For the Christian, the best is always yet to be. What will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus, of a reconciled divine Father who loves us for Jesus' sake, no less than he loves Jesus himself. To see and know and love and be loved by the Father and the Son in the company with the rest of God's vast family is the whole essence of Christian hope. If you are a believer, if you are a believer, and so an adopted child, this prospect satisfies you completely. If it does not strike you as satisfying, it would seem that you are neither. Or one song puts it like this. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, almighty God, thank you for this day that you've given Thank you for your words. Thank you for free grace. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place, to be the righteousness that I need to enter the kingdom of God. I pray, Father, that we would stop trusting ourselves, that we would stop trusting anything and start trusting you wholly and completely. That we would be a humble people. That we would be a people that loves our neighbor that we would follow you and take nothing in our hands but what's but your hand. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.